Hello, my name is Dr Sarah Campbell and I lecture on Northern Ireland History in the School of History and Archives in University College Dublin. Today I'm going to talk about why was there a civil rights movement in Northern Ireland and why did it occur in the 1960s and not before. On the 5th of October 1968, a relatively small crowd gathered in Derry, Northern Ireland, to highlight civil rights injustices and civil concerns there, such as the lack of housing and employment by peacefully marching through the city. The march had been banned by the ruling Unionist government and the marches brutally were brutally attacked by members of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, or the RUC. The violence which met the 5th of October march was captured by the television cameras and its broadcast outraged British and world opinion. Northern Ireland had seen its October revolution and the political landscape would never be the same again. The march had achieved another important end though. It had shaken people out of their lethargy and made them aware of their own strength. But how and why did this happen? Firstly, the issue of Catholic grievances regarding discrimination, particularly in the areas of housing, voting and policing, can be traced back to the political and security system established under the tenure of Northern Ireland's first Prime Minister, James Craig, in the early 1920s. Under Craig, Northern Ireland's local parliamentary assembly, meeting at Stormont in Belfast, took steps to consolidate Unionist power. It created a police force, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which would remain 90% Protestant throughout its existence. It also established a well-armed, all-Protestant paramilitary called the Ulster Special Constabulary, commonly known as the B-Specials. Police were issued a formidable weapon in the form of the Special Powers Act, which allowed arrest without a warrant, internment without trial, unlimited search powers and the prerogative to ban meetings and publications. Northern Ireland's voting system was deliberately ma- manipulated to the advantage of the Unionists. Craig abolished proportional representation, which contrived to keep as few nationalists from winning governmental seats as possible. And to further this end, Craig also withdrew the local government boundaries along partisan lines. The combination of these two strategies reduced the control of the nationalists from 24 councils to 13. The voting system was so biased towards Unionists that in Derry, 10,000 nationalist voters elected 8 councillors, while 7,500 Unionists elected 12. This clear imbalance caused deep resentment among Catholic voters. The conflict which broke out in Northern Ireland in October 1968 emerged out of a situation of rapid social and political change that began after the Second World War. These changes disrupted a set of relationships, in particular a tradition of quiescence by the Catholic population in Northern Ireland, on which the very existence of the Northern Ireland state was based. Not only that, but the welfare reforms introduced by the Labour government in 1945 dramatically increased the state resources for distribution, and increasingly Catholics looked beyond their own quasi-state they had created to the Northern Ireland state. Practically all the civil rights issues concerned aspects of state expansion, the allocation of public housing, discrimination in public employment and the siting of public institutions. In local authorities west of the River Ban, housing allocation became an intensely politicised issue. It was not simply a social issue where houses went to the most needy. Nationalists saw each allocation as a direct hit against the Catholic community, whereas the Unionists dismissed this as Republican propaganda. Such disputes were particularly intense where there was a rare prospect of shifting the local balance of power, that is, where the two sides were evenly balanced numerically or where a unionist minority held power due to gerrymandered borders. 
The civil rights movement had its beginnings in a number of housing-related incidents in the early 1960s, which began to highlight the problem that had existed for a number of years. The question of discrimination is still highly politically charged and is deployed in the propaganda war between the competing parties. However, John White's judgment on how much discrimination there was in Northern Ireland is probably the fairest. He judged that the picture is neither black nor white, but a shade of grey. But in the west of the province, the greyness of the picture changes to an ominous darkness. It is precisely because the issue of discrimination was thus localised that the civil rights movement had its origins in Tyrone and Derry and not in Belfast, where one would expect. Secondly, the replacement of Lord Brookber as Prime Minister of Northern Ireland by Terence O'Neill in 1963 and the Labour government returning to power in Britain in 1964 contributed to the belief that attitudinal changes on the North were taking place. In 1963, Lord Brookber resigned after 20 years as Prime Minister of Northern Ireland and was succeeded by Captain Terence O'Neill. Under the leadership of O'Neill, it was widely believed that decisive changes were taking place and that Northern Ireland was being modernised. That is to say that Northern Ireland was ceasing to be obsessed by sectarian symbols and was beginning to share the preoccupations of the rest of the Western world with economic growth and consumer satisfaction. There is a tendency to think of the premiership of Terence O'Neill as one of the great might-have-beens of recent Irish history, a regime apparently moving to heal its religious divisions, being derailed by the extremes on both sides. Because not only did he embark on an apparent whirlwind of regional development, but also for the first time, a unionist prime minister made religious reconciliation part of government policy. O'Neill believed the Ulster Unionist Party could attract Catholic voters, arguing we must get away from this facile assumption that the Roman Catholic population is identical with the nationally minded people. In 1963, less than a year after the IRA cross-border campaign ended, O'Neill was making concerted efforts to include Catholics in his vision of a new Ulster. After Brookwood's anti-Catholic statements, many Catholics came to view O'Neill as some kind of saving hero. This was his problem. It was hardly traditional unionism and left too many unionists uneasy and ultimately hostile. Not only that, but in trying to appeal to both sides, O'Neill appealed to neither. Thirdly, across the north, those from the newly expanded middle class turned away from the stagnant politics of the old Nationalist Party and looked to other forms of organisation. From the late 1950s onwards, there was a redefining of Catholic or Nationalist politics in the north. The post-war improvement in living standards meant that the arrival of the consumer society, while not displacing traditional fixations with partition, drained them of some of their emotional centrality. When looking back over the civil rights period in Northern Ireland, civil rights activists pinpoint the 1947 Education Act as the changing force behind the intellectual evolution of nationalism. Men and women like Austin Curry, Eamon McCann, John Hume, Brenda Devlin, Michael Farrell, among many others, saw that the nationalists suffered from an important flaw. They failed to see that a more subtle and more devious approach could pose a far more serious threat to unionism's vested interests than the long-pursued emphasis on the border and electoral abuses. However, it's important not to overestimate this new Catholic middle-class thesis. But for those who became involved in the struggle for civil rights, their view of the Nationalist Party was that its failure in securing any meaningful reforms in the almost 50 years of opposition meant that it was now judged as a redundant and outdated political force which would have to be replaced.
John Hume has been lauded as the main intellectual thinker within nationalist politics in the late 20th century. By 1964, Hume sensed a feeling in his community that the Nationalist Party's current situation, that of non-recognition of the state and anti-partitionism, had finally run its course. He felt that the Catholic community could now take its place within the society it had boycotted for so long and that this would be the most effective demonstration to the Protestants that they no longer had anything to fear from Catholics and no excuse to discriminate against them on the basis of disloyalty. It came as no great surprise, therefore, that a serious discussion emerged within the minority community as to how it should proceed, especially whether or not the time would come for Catholics in Northern Ireland to move away from its bunker mentality that had shaped their political attitudes for so long. Hume's dominance in politics began in community issues. In the mid-1960s, he felt that the need for action in the non-political front was greater. One incident that pushed him to prominence was the issue of the new university, which he proposed should be cited in his native Derry. O'Neill's rejection of the Derry appeal was a significant factor in turning Hume's fertile mind towards a search for other means of tackling the inequalities of Northern Ireland. The denial of the university really awakened even the politically dormant and inspired the beginning of more questioning about the nature of the Northern Ireland state. The university decision, said Hume, electrified the people on the nationalist side and I think it was really the spark that ignited the civil rights movement, though I suppose nobody could have articulated it then in those terms. And when the university went to Coleraine, the chance of orderly change in Northern Ireland probably disappeared. It became clear to me, certainly, that change would only be affected by positive political action. The civil rights campaign began in the mid-1960s then as an attempt to draw attention to the grievances felt by Catholics in Northern Ireland. The initial grouping, the Campaign for Social Justice, adopted the techniques of a pressure group and wrote letters to MPs in the House of Commons in London and published a series of pamphlets. The letters and pamphlets set out their case that Catholics in the region were experiencing disadvantages in relation to public sector housing and jobs and also because of certain electoral practices. The campaign became a mass movement in 1967 when the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, or NICRA, was founded in Belfast. Although NICRA was not formed until 1967, the preceding years of the decade saw several attempts to get it off the ground. The association had a very modest inaugural meeting. A 13-person steering committee was drawn from the Amalgamated Union of Engineering Workers, the Campaign for Social Justice, the Communist Party of Northern Ireland, the Belfast Wolf Tone Society, the Belfast Trades Council, the Republican Clubs, the Ulster Liberal Party, the National Democratic Party, the Republican Labour Party, the Northern Ireland Labour Party and many other interested individuals. The main objectives of the NICRA were universal adult suffrage in local government elections, the end to gerrymandered electoral boundaries, the allocation of public housing to be on the basis of need, repeal of the Special Powers Act, the disbanding of the B-Specials, the end to discrimination on employment, and a system to deal with the complaints of discrimination. The NICRA began to lobby for support for its aims, but quickly resorted to protest action on the streets of Northern Ireland. It was never inevitable that the civil rights movement of 1967 and 1968 would develop into the civil conflict of 1969 and the limited civil war of the 70s. It is easy in hindsight to view the civil rights movement as the beginning and cause of the 35 years of violence, for Unionists to dismiss it as either an IRA plot or a Catholic movement to bring down the storming government, in light of what followed. Bob Purdy describes this as a typical conspiracy theory, which adduces the fact that something did happen as evidence that someone meant it to happen. 
but it is difficult to overemphasise the influence of the civil rights movement on Northern Ireland politics. Demonstrations provoked increasing counter-violence and polarisation between the two communities increased. The fact that the problem of discrimination in Northern Ireland is now seen as a crucial issue by the governments in both Britain and Ireland is vindication of a sort for the civil rights movement. The movement's vision was broader and more inclusive than any seen in Northern Ireland before. It inspired people who had lost faith in the possibilities of change, although it did not succeed in finding a way to bring these changes about. As the movement celebrated its 40th anniversary in 2008, the Commemorative Committee correctly stated the things that happened during that pivotal year in 1968 had a profound effect upon our society and precipitated an avalanche of change which left no part of our community untouched. It is important for historians, therefore, now that the files for this period have been released, to correlate some of the decisions made by those in power with events on the ground and to debunk the myths that surround this important era.